The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Good morning, Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors at First Presbyterian Church downtown. So good to be with you all this morning. And I want to thank Brian for inviting me to be part of this George Long series. Uh, We love your church. We live up here in the mountain, know a lot of the uh, members here, and so grateful for the many years of faithful service of Lookout Mountain Perez. Well, here we are in Genesis chapter 40 this morning. And the reason I chose this passage is because I think most of us are worn out. We are frazzled, we are tired, and we desperately want to get away from that. And was reading a book recently that talked about that, that the catchphrase we're all using right now is, I just want life to be good again. And thinking about that this morning, as we think about faith for the long haul, I came across some interesting facts about our bodies. We can survive, we humans, for two to three minutes without air. Uh, With training, it's possible to hold your breath for 11 minutes. Uh, By contrast, we can survive just 10 minutes at 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and we can barely endure 30 minutes in water that's 40 degrees Fahrenheit. We can survive seven days without water, up to seven days, but, and up to 45 days without food. Here's the point. Our bodies are amazing, amazing revelations of God. But they break down, and they can only take so much. And I think most of us know that about our bodies. But I wonder if we think about our souls the same way. And when we come here to Genesis 40, if you grew up in church, or if you've had Sunday school, Bible vacation Bible school, things like that, Uh, You kind of know the story about Joseph, uh, but let's get a little bit deeper context here. The Joseph narrative begins in Genesis 37 and runs to the end of the book in chapter 50. We are in the point of the narrative where he's been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been promoted to a high position in the kingdom of Egypt, and then his master's wife lies about him. And so he's thrown into prison. And let's make sure we understand what that term means. Uh, We all kind of have an idea of what prison is. It's not the prisons that we have today. Uh, A lot of them are bad. I know that. But this is an ancient world prison. So this is why when we read through the text, and you heard that word, the pit. So picture a cold, damp place with no indoor plumbing, um, a lot of misery, a lot of suffering, and that's where Joseph's life is. And it's important to remember where it started. It started with receiving direct revelation from God. And he is a guy who was shown by the Lord that he would have rule and preeminence, and here he is in a dungeon. But Joseph's story is really our story in a lot of ways because it's part of the story of redemption, as we'll see here in just a few minutes. But here's what I want us to see this morning. When hope seems dead, faith holds on, faith trusts God's sovereignty, and faith hopes in God's providence. 
And those will be our three pointers, our three points rather this morning. I, a little bit different from your printed outline, I turned that into Diane, um, and then as these things go along and you study, you make adjustment, adjustments, so I apologize for that. So our first point from verses six and seven in Genesis 40 is faith holds on. Look there again at verses six and seven. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? You remember what's happened here. The chief cupbearer and the baker are both in prison with Joseph, and they are shortly going to be released. Joseph wakes up one morning and sees that their faces are downcast. Now, important to recognize here is the fact that Joseph has suffered for a while in this prison. And if you've undergone intense personal trial, and I imagine many of you have, you know that that trials tend to do something to how we perceive the world. They tend to narrow our horizons for what we can see around us. And part of that is the way God designed our bodies, the fight or flight instinct. But a lot of it has to do with our spiritual understanding. So trials can make us intensely focused on ourselves and on our suffering. And again, a lot of that is natural. But notice Joseph's response here. He he goes to these two men. He sees their suffering. His horizon is broadened beyond himself. And he asks them a simple question. And in asking that question, he reminds us that suffering, trials, are really a form of evangelism in one sense. They're a form of evangelism in the sense that in the midst of our own suffering, when we go and minister to others, we're really holding on to Jesus as our sure hope in the midst of those trials. Now imagine his mindset. There's no prospect of freedom yet. We'll get to that part of the narrative in just a second. He's been falsely accused of rape. He feels like his dreams were now the stuff of archaeology, not a supply of hope. All of that must have seemed like a distant memory, like a dream to Joseph. And yet, he does what most of us wouldn't do. Trials can also make us bitter. We've been through some hard providences in our life, but that bitterness that comes with suffering and trials can easily swallow up any joy we have in Jesus, any joy and trust we have in what he's actually doing in our lives. But when we read the narrative of Joseph, what stands out is that he's calm and steady the whole time. And that to me is, is just amazing. That's what I want to be like. I want to be more calm steadier when the storms of life come blasting over the little bark that we're sailing in. And so we need to ask the question, how does that happen? Why did Joseph do that? And and I think the answer here in this text is pretty clear that his faith was holding on to something greater than himself. He had the promises of God. He'd started out as kind of an immature young man, boasting of his dreams. And now he's been seasoned by testing. He's been seasoned 
by hardship. And we know that he was taught by one of the patriarchs. We know that his great-grandfather had promises made to him. So we know that Joseph had heard the covenant promises, and you just can't help but think that those were coming to his mind sitting in a dark, non-modern engineered pit. So that's the first thing. Faith holds on when hope seems dead. The second thing we see there in verse 8 is that faith trusts God's sovereignty when hope seems dead. Look at verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, note the irony here, as one commentator points out. Dreams are what got Joseph into this mess, and dreams are ultimately what get him out of it. How tempting it would have been for Joseph to have become cynical by this point. Again, just think, we have to put ourselves in the Bible character's shoes or sandals, as it were. Wouldn't it have been easy for Joseph to think to himself, so much for your dreams you gave me, God, so much for all of the things you promised me, all of that has landed me here. Where are you, God? Maybe a lot of us have asked that question. Maybe you're new to this whole Christianity thing and you just kind of maybe blow it off as one more religious attempt to get your attention. And whether we've followed Jesus for a long time or we're just kind of feeling this whole Christianity thing out, cynicism might be the best character trait to describe our age. We've been let down a lot. There's been recessions. There's been pandemics, as if we need to mention that one more time. There's been inflation. There's been political unrest. And we look around and say, how in the world is God still in this world, involved in it? All of that sounds like the stuff of stories I heard when I was a kid. And the root of cynicism is the failure of our idols to live up to their promises. And, and what I mean by that is this. The reason why we get cynical so often is because we have expectations and when those expectations are not met, particularly when it comes to our spiritual lives, it's very easy to just immediately say, see, I knew it. I pray, I don't get answers. I follow Jesus, bad stuff happens to me. And therefore, here's how the reasoning goes. God isn't very interested in me. He has forgotten about me. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that Joseph was probably tempted by that kind of reasoning. But what's his response? It's faith. He trusts the sovereign God whom he had learned about from his father and his mother's knees. He says to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Instead of going, yeah, I hear you. Dreams? whatever. He says, no, don't those belong to God? And again, we need to enter into the cultural situation a little bit here. 
at this time in world history, interpreting dreams in the Egyptian culture was, as one scholar pointed out, quite a lucrative business. So these guys would have been used to somebody going, yeah, okay, for a fee, I'll tell you what your dreams mean. But Joseph doesn't do that. He says the interpretations belong to God. He sees an opportunity to glorify God in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his own trials, because his horizon has broadened to see the God of promise. He can say to them, let me hear them. And there's the rule for us, and really the key to Joseph's life, his trust, his complete abandonment to the all-controlling sovereignty of God to bring about God's own purposes for his own glory and Joseph's good. And here's the key, even when Joseph couldn't see that good, didn't experience that good. His life looked anything but good. It looked terrible. And still, he says, God is not finished with me. His plans and purposes will not be thwarted even by the circumstances I find myself in. My friends, do we love the sovereignty of God? It can be a doctrinal debating point, and when you read the Scriptures, that is not at all what it was intended for. The Bible never debates it. It states it. And it states it for our comfort because our Father is good and generous and loving and kind, and he wants us to put our hands in his and say, I don't understand, and he can hear that from us. He can take that in, as it were, from us. And yet, at the same time, as we place our disappointments, our broken dreams, all of the letdowns just of daily life, never mind the massive trials, as we place those into our loving Father's hands, it brings Him great joy when we abandon ourselves to Him. And that's really what faith is in one sense, isn't it? It's letting go of thinking that we're sovereign. It's letting go of thinking that even for one second, we were somehow in control of our lives and so much around us is calculated to make us think we are in control of our lives. But God in his goodness and gentleness, whether he has to take us to prison or has to allow us to wait for answers to prayers or maybe even says no to some of our requests, he will gently remind us he holds the world in his hands, not we. And therefore, like Joseph, we can abandon ourselves to him. The third thing this text teaches us is that faith trusts God's providence. Here's how the narrative works, as we heard. He tells them the interpretation of their dreams. 
And then he says this in verses 14 and 15. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should have put me into the pit. Here's what Joseph does. He has not given way to cynicism on the one hand or fatalism on the other. What do we mean by fatalism? Fatalism is simply the teaching that we've heard in the old song, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's expressed in our day and age as if it's meant to be, it'll be. And that's kind of a resignation that whatever I do doesn't matter. But Joseph, again, knew the promises, knew the God of the promises, who promises that he is in control of all things and yet uses means to accomplish his ends. And so Joseph does not hesitate to ask to be remembered. He probably thought he was forgotten by God by this point. And so he places his trust in God and then says to these two men, please remember me when things go well. And we know what happens. They don't remember him. They forget him. And he continues to wait and to wait and to wait. And here in full relief, we see something of the biblical storyline in miniature. God's people waited for 400 years in bondage after Joseph's death. After Malachi finished penning the last part of his little prophecy, they waited another 400 or so years before God spoke again to give us the New Testament and complete the story he had begun here in the book of Genesis. And I think God does it this way sometimes, friends, because he knows we are impatient people and because he knows the story fully and we don't. And when we're hard-pressed, when trials are among us and upon us, we want relief, and that is only natural. But God in his sovereignty sees the whole picture, and we only see a partial bit of that complete picture. And therefore, waiting is hard. But consider here how Joseph points us to Jesus. Here's something we can miss in the gospel narratives about our Savior. He lived for 30 plus years, maybe, at least 30 years, in obscurity. Remember the first question that was asked when he was calling the disciples to himself in John chapter one, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the cynical reply. Nazareth, this backwater town in the Roman Empire, this place that nobody's heard of, can anything good come out of that. He lived in obscurity and did manual labor. Grandfather was an iron worker, and I can always remember him every time he visited us when we lived in South Carolina where I grew up. He always had a hammer. He always had something to build up until almost his dying day. He worked hard his entire life. 
His hands, his face, his body showed it. His arms were always sunburned. And yet, we don't tend to think about Jesus like that. He didn't go to college. He was never married, never had children. He lived in obscurity and waited for three decades until the time was right, until his father's sovereign timing was just right. And what did he do while he waited? He ministered to his family, to those in his village, to his household around him. And then again, consider Jesus on the cross. Joseph felt forgotten, abandoned by God, but he was only seemingly abandoned. Jesus really was in the mystery of the workings of the Trinitarian God, the Father for only one time ever turns his face away from his son as his son bears the very curse of the covenant promises he had made to Joseph and his Old Testament saints. Bears the covenant curses for you and for me who rightly deserve to be abandoned, to be forsaken. In our place, the Savior cries out, The opening lines to Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Waiting, then suffering was the life pattern of the Messiah. And the number one category in the New Testament to describe us as Christians are those who are united to Jesus. Therefore, As one of my professors so memorably put it 13 years ago when I first heard him say it, it stuck with me ever since, our life pattern will match the Savior's life pattern. Suffering and waiting, then glory. And on the pathway to glory of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, should Jesus choose to come back. But in every part of our lives that pathway is marked out by trials, by difficulties. It's the cross, then the crown, my friends, and the order is irreversible. So how do we draw all of this together? I used to ask the Sunday school class, I had the privilege of teaching back in Columbia, what does it mean for Monday? When the world forgets, beloved, remember that God remembers And the beauty of the story of the gospel is that while the world forgets us, here's what God forgets about us. He forgets our sins. He says, I will remember them no more as far as the east is from the west. So far shall I cast your sins away from me. He doesn't remember our sins. He forgets those, but he never forgets us. He knows your name. He knows your trials. He knows your difficulties. He knows your prayers. He sees everything. He's the God who sees. That's how he names himself in the Bible. And Jesus, our heavenly high priest, is the one who draws near to us 
He's the one who can come close to us in our suffering and say, I've been there, I understand. There is no other God invented by men or the world's religions that can say anything like that. As the sinless Son of God who took on flesh and was raised again for our justification, only Jesus can draw near to us and say, I understand. So when faith is hard and God seems absent, when the world is crazy, that's how it feels right now. How do we keep going? Just a few things will be done. First thing, stop and recenter daily. Just stop in the middle of going from one thing to the next and just as one author I read put it, just say, I love you to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I love you. Father, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. That little recentering goes a long way in keeping our sanity. Second thing, speak to yourself. There's a narrative running in our minds every day. Most of it's filled with shame, self-reproach, guilt. Wish I wouldn't have said that. Wish I wouldn't have done that. We're talking to ourselves constantly, and we have to come back again and again to having the Word of God spoken to us, the promises of God being told to us. That's why it's good to know this book, to hold, lay hold of those promises and speak the Word of life to ourselves. Finally, surrender everything to Jesus daily, Give everything to him. Give it up to him, friends. We were never meant to carry the loads we're carrying. We have to release our burdens to him. And if that takes a moment-by-moment doing of that, then do it. I came across a story about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China in the 19th century. After six years of labor, he was forced for a number of reasons, to return to East London. And he felt forgotten. And during those years that he was in London, nobody saw him. Nobody made mention of him. And he said this later. Without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be. After waiting, God sent Hudson Taylor back to China, and he began the modern missionary movement. Friends, wherever we are this morning, whatever trials we're undergoing, no matter how much we feel forgotten by God, as one scholar put it so well, delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. Let's pray together. Lord, you are not in the earthquake or the fire or the sound of rushing wind, but in a still, small voice. May that voice ring in our ears this week. Would you increase our patience, our endurance, our centeredness on our Savior? Will we know more of your love in our trials, Lord? 
Would you show us your grace every day more and more so that we might bring all the glory to the King who keeps us, even Jesus our Savior. Amen.